And so thank you for uh, leaning in and loving one another well as we've been figuring this out together. God has been uh, very gracious to us during this time. Uh, but for many months now, as you know, we've been uh, kind of patiently and prayerfully waiting on the Lord and, and uh, seeking his direction for us as a church. And I believe God has now uh, given us that direction that we've been asking him for. Uh, your feedback uh, was overwhelmingly clear on the direction that we uh, collectively believe that God is, God is leading us. And I, I'm eager to, t- to take this step of faith together and to trust Jesus with uh, the future of his church, because, because that's what it is, right? It, it's his. And so we find ourselves this morning at a turning point, really. We're turning the page on a new chapter as we, as we move in a new direction as a, as a new church. And so rather than being one church in three different locations across our city, we're instead going to be one church in, in one location. And I would say that uh, while this recent season has been a hard season, it's, it's also been a hopeful season too. It's been an encouraging, an encouraging reminder of, of really what the church is and what it's not. I think we've all been reminded along the way that the church is not about a particular person or a particular place or a particular program. The church is about a particular people. It's about the people of God being the people of God together. And there is perhaps no more beautiful picture of the people of God being the people of God together than you see in Acts chapter 2. And so I'd like to take a look at that together this morning. I'd like to look at the very first church that that Jesus built, because I want us to be able to kind of envision it and imagine it and, and to pray towards it for ourselves and for our, our church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter presents uh, the gospel for the first time. He preaches the very first sermon, and it says that, that people were cut to the heart. It says they repented and believed, they received the gospel, and they received the Holy Spirit, and the first Christian church uh, came alive. And then Luke begins describing these people. He begins telling us what this first church was like. And so, so what was this church like? What were they doing? Uh, how were they living? And is there something that we can learn from this? Could we, could we be like this church? In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, Luke actually gives us five marks, five uh, signs of life, so to speak, of what it looks like when when God builds a church, because that's what's happening here in this passage. And Luke gives us these five marks in just five verses, 98 Greek words. It's a very brief passage, but it's a very rich and compelling passage of what what the church is and what the church can be. And one thing that's clear is that these people in this passage, they were not so much doing church or or going to church, they they were being the church. Because they didn't really know anything about church. They didn't have books about church. They didn't have Christian denominations to go to. They didn't have conferences or webinars they could could register for. Instead, what you see here is the very first church being born and built by, by Jesus, his way. And so let's take a look at how this happens. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. 
Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, it says, the Lord added to their numbers, to their number, those who were being saved. And so five marks in these five short verses. Let me give these five things away ahead of time, and then we'll take a look at each one of them. What you see here in this passage, this first church, first of all, they had theological depth. They had intimate fellowship, vibrant worship. Social compassion and deliberate evangelism. And I think a case could be made that when you have all five of these active and and kind of firing, you you have a vital and a vibrant spirit-led church. But before we look at these five things, it's very important to understand that these five things, in order for these five things to come about, it is a... It is a work of God in in every way. These five things can only happen as a result of the Spirit of God at work moving among the people of God. The Bible does make that clear. But interestingly, the Bible at the same time seems to kind of command us to to do these five things and and to have these five things. And so what this means, I think, is that it would be a mistake for us to think that we can bring these five things about through our planning and through our our programming. But it's also a mistake to think that we can sit back passively and wait for God to to make all these things happen for us. In fact, there's a sense in which the Bible teaches that the church is both uh, an organism, it is alive in a sense, but it's also an organization that, that we have to organize. The Bible teaches on the one hand that the church is a living thing. It's not something that we create. It's it's something God creates. Jesus says, I will build my church, right? I will. We can't build a body, right? A body grows. It's an organic thing. It's a living thing. And the church on the one hand is like that. But the Bible teaches on the other hand that the church is also an, an organization. Everything doesn't just happen, right, spontaneously. Together, you and I, we, we, have, we have to do some things. The Bible says the church needs to elect elders and deacons, right? It says there are certain structures and systems that need to, need to be in place that are necessary. There are various ministry roles and responsibilities that need to, be, need to be accounted for. And this means that as we talk about these uh, five marks, we need to plan and and provide for the opportunity for them to take place. We need to step up and we need to step in. But at the very same time, we need to pray for these five marks, understanding that ultimately God, only God, can bring them about, at least in the ways we're going to see in this passage. And so to be clear, we can't create these five marks by trying to create these five marks. We can probably create one or two, maybe three tops. Without the Spirit of God, it's possible to manufacture some of these things, right? Many, many churches do, but not all five. After all, there are some churches that are very strong at teaching sound doctrine. 
And they may have great fellowship, but they have no real concern for, for the people in their, in their community. It's possible to be a church that's known for great worship. There's a, a very high entertainment value when you step in there on a Sunday, but their doctrine is confused and their evangelism is absent. Some churches are really strong on outreach and social action. They meet a lot of needs around them, and that's a, that's a great thing. But their fellowship is dry, and their worship is, is dead. And so you get the idea. Without the Spirit of God, it's not that hard to build churches like these. But in order to have a church with all five of these marks present, there is a, there's a certain balance that, that must be found here between between what we are to do and what we, and what we understand only God can do. You can think of our part in this like being a gardener. A gardener doesn't create the life that is growing in the garden. A gardener doesn't uh, create the life in that, in that little tomato seed. But the gardener can provide the opportunity in a very organized and intentional way for the life in that little tomato seed to, to kind of break out and and become something new. When the gardener gets down in there and really starts weeding and watering and fertilizing, they're, they're not creating the life, but they are kind of clearing the way for that life to have the opportunity to grow. In a similar way, we need to be clearing the way. We need to be creating an environment within our hearts and within our church through things like repentance and confession and, and prayer where the scriptural freedom, where we give the, the, the scriptural freedom for the Spirit of God to do His to do His work, and so there's a, there's a balance here. We need to understand we can't create these five marks; only God can. But we also understand we don't just passively sit back and wait for them to to happen to us either. And so, what are these five things? That took a while for me to get there. So, what are these five things? Well, first, these people, this first church, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, it says in verse, two, uh, verse 42. So theological depth is, is the first mark. And that word teaching, it's the same word as, as doctrine. They were devoting themselves and their lives to the apostles' doctrine, to, to learning more and more about, about Jesus. They were devoted, which means they dug in, they, they studied, they they thought, they reflected, they, they wrestled. Of course, they didn't have the New Testament like, like we do, but they did have the apostles. The very same apostles who actually wrote the New Testament for us in the form that we now have it. And God was authenticating the authority of these apostles in those early days. Verse 43 tells us, through many signs and wonders being performed by them and the people saw this the, the people got this and so the people submitted to this they submitted to the authority of the apostles and they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles in much the same way we submit to the apostles teachings too right as they have been recorded in the the new testament for us and we also see those teachings as authoritative over our lives and as as trustworthy and and sufficient in our lives. But the bottom line is you have, you have to have the right input, right? The right theological content coming in. That's where it all starts. That's the, the foundation of a biblical church. You see that here with the first church. 
And you see that too, I hope, with our church. Many churches these days, they like to pick and choose when it comes to the Bible. They decide for themselves which parts of the Bible they like and which they don't, which they'll submit to, which, which they'll teach, and which parts they won't. But that's a, a slippery slope and, and a dangerous one too. Because once you start picking and choosing which parts of the Bible you like and which parts you don't, where do you stop? Can you stop? What happens is you end up putting yourself in authority over the scriptures rather than coming under them, rather than the other way around. And you end up believing not in, a, in the God of the Bible, but in a God of your own design and your own imagination. And so, friends, if we're to have any integrity about the Bible and any trust in its authority, we're not going to kind of step around. We're not going to step over any passages because they may feel uncomfortable. Rather, rather, we intend to be a people who press in all the more to what it, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all scripture, not some, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the, the man of God, the person of God may be complete, equipped for every, every good work. So even with the hard and uncomfortable passages, and we've had many in recent months, right, we do believe that every biblical truth can be profitable, profitable for us. And we also believe that every biblical truth is not some abstract or intellectual thing, rather it's a, it's a living thing. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it says, for the word of God is living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is alive and active. I love that. We think we're examining it when it's actually examining us. God is examining us he's challenging us and, and changing us through his living and active word there is a transforming power in the word of God that can come in and and change the lives of of the people of God and you certainly see this transforming power with these people in Acts chapter 2 because look look at neck what happens next they first they were devoted to the apostles teaching they had a a certain theological depth to them that's that's where it all starts this first church was a learning church, but we also see that it was, a, it was a loving church too. And so the second mark of a spirit-filled church that you see in this passage is intimate fellowship. Did you notice the word together kept showing up in this passage? They seem to be doing, doing everything together. The believers were all together, verse 44. They were, they were meeting in the temple, verse 46. They were sharing meals together. They were in their homes together, they were praying and praising God together. They, they were together. Perhaps the most important sign of life that cannot be missing from, a, from a, a vital church is a love inside that church that is, that is visible and, and remarkable, one that, one that people can't help but, but remark about. One of the most encouraging words of affirmation anyone 
was ever given to me about our church. This person is not around anymore, but when she was, she, she went out of her way to remark about the genuine love that was so evident among us when, when we're together. Last Sunday, many of you uh, hung out down in Ellis Chapel for well over an hour after our service here in this space, sharing stories, sharing your joys, sharing your sorrows, sharing your lives together, loving, loving one another. And I thank God for that because that's not something I can create. It's not something we can create. It's something, something that he creates for us. Our shared relationships with Jesus create a unity among us that runs far deeper than any of the differences between us, deeper than any uh, racial differences, any economic differences, any social differences, even any political differences. There's something truly unique about the unity and the fellowship that can happen among Christians when the Spirit of God is at work. When I became a Christian, it happened very suddenly, very abruptly. March 12, 2012, I was in my mid-40s at the time, and I was making a mess of my life. And I was not looking or asking for Jesus, but that didn't matter. He came, he came crashing into my life that day with no warning at all, and he said, Jeff, you're mine. He said, you're coming with me. He, he claimed me that day as, as his own. And what was I going to say? I said, me, are you sure? That doesn't sound right. Look at me. He said, I see you, and I'm sure. And my journey with him began that day. But after that day happened, after that happened, the reason I bring this up, I, I felt such a very strong and very uh, peculiar compulsion to be around other Christians. Before that day, no. Not at all. Not even a little bit. But suddenly I was going to multiple church services on Sundays. I was going to multiple Bible studies during the week just to be around other people who, who knew Jesus too. My family didn't know what had happened. They were scratching their heads and wondering if Jeff had gone off the deep end. And I had for Jesus. You see, God was creating a unity in my heart with fellow believers that was never there before. It had nothing to do with me trying or, or doing anything. It had to do with our shared relationships with Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in, in my heart. And you see that with these people in Acts chapter 2. They were together. They wanted to be together. They wanted to share their, their loves and their lives and their hopes and their, and their dreams together. But mostly they wanted to share Jesus together. They were devoted to him, and as a result, they were devoted to, to one another. Now, the third mark of a vital, spirit-filled, spirit-led church is, is vibrant worship. And what you see here is that as these people devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the, the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, which is what verse 42 says they were doing, as they devoted themselves to these things, the rest of the passage reveals for us the radiant and worship-filled, worshipful lives that came about as a result. Listen to what these people were like according to Luke. Depending on the translation you look at, Luke says they were a glad 
and generous people, glad and generous. They were a joyful and sincere people. They were a grateful people. They were a praying people and a praising people. And it says there was a sense of awe and wonder that that was taking hold of them the more they got to know this, this Jesus. And as we talked about a few weeks back, worship is is a response, really. That's what it is. It's a response to God. It's a response to to who he is and what he's done. And look at how these people were responding to God with awe and wonder and joy and praying and and praising. They were a worshiping people responding rightly to, to Jesus. But again, this can't be manufactured. We can't create this on our own, but God can and God does. There's a certain balance we talked about, right? We need to do our part. We need to prepare the soil and make room for the life to, to break out. And so we, we approach this intentionally. If worship, if worship is a response to what is true about God, this means that we need to we need to engage our minds, right? We need, to, we need to think. We need to consider what is true about God. We need to take it in. We need to think it through. And we humbly ask the Holy Spirit to bring that truth alive, right? To, to, to move that truth from our head to our hearts. To cause that truth to, to kind of catch fire with, within us. When the Holy Spirit makes the truth real and makes the presence of God real, which is, which is what he does, hearts and lives are, are changed and worship breaks out. Have you ever had a passage you've read a hundred times before suddenly begin to, to shine in a, in a new way? You're thinking, I never, why didn't I ever see that before? You see, that's the truth, getting, getting real. The Holy Spirit does that and we need to be Asking him to, to do that each and every time we come into this place. Will you, will you commit to, to doing that? The Bible actually commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells believers who already have the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what is that about? And the words there that are used, to be filled, makes clear this is an ongoing thing. Continue, continuously being filled by the Spirit, Paul says. And then get this, in the, the next few verses that follow, in a, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, uh, Paul dis- begins describing what it looks like when the church is being filled and led by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18 of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, but be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Now listen to what these spirit-filled people were doing. They were addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They were were singing to one another. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. They were were singing to God. Giving thanks always. They They were grateful. And for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another. They were They were humble. Out of reverence for Christ, there's awe, there's awe and there's intimacy together in their worship. And that all that sounds a little bit familiar, right? Paul is giving us another glimpse here of a spirit-filled people. 
engaging and spirit-fueled, spirit-inspired worship. And it is a it is a beautiful thing indeed. And so let us together be praying continually that God would be filling us as his people with his spirit, that he would be making us a people who look and live and love and worship him in vibrant ways like these. The fourth mark of a vital, spirit-filled, spirit-led church is, is compassion and concern for, for people, social compassion. These people here, they were no longer holding on to their stuff the way human beings tend to. They were selling their stuff, and they were spending their own money to help other people. Anyone who, anyone who had need, it says, anyone, not just inside the church, but out, outside too. Any and all who had need. They were serving others rather than serving themselves, just like Jesus did for them. Now, I know the example it gives here is money, but they were giving much more than money. The word devoted, remember in verse 42 in the Bible, that word devote literally means to give something away. To devote something means you give it away. Some versions of the Bible actually translate it that way. And so these people, they were giving themselves away. They were giving, giving their lives away for the sake of the people around them because they knew that's exactly what Jesus did uh, for them. They were giving away their emotional involvement. They were giving away their time and their, their energy and their, and their money in some, and in some cases even their, even their lives for the, for the sake of others both inside and outside the church. And the result was a type of compassion and a radical unselfishness the world had simply never seen. It pervaded the ways they were living their lives. You see it in this passage. You see it in the early church. You still see it today around us if, if you're looking for it. The third century Roman emperor named Julian, he wrote a letter at one point complaining about uh, the early Christians because they were making him look bad. He said this, he said, they, they being the early Christians, they were, they were taking care not only of their own poor, they were taking care of our poor as well. And everybody could see it. And it was making Julian look bad to his own people. Many other religions certainly talk about care for the poor, but there was, there was a certain energy and a, a power coming out of Christianity that was creating unprecedented levels of, of care and concern and compassion for those who were in need. And so how did this happen? Where did this energy, this power come from? Well, God, of course, was the sovereign source of this, but he was using his people in order to make it happen as, as he does. He was using the word of God and the, and the spirit of God to change the hearts and lives of the people of God. That, that's how it happened. That's how it's still happening. And as a result, the early Christians essentially invented hospitals. That word hospital, it's derived from three different words. Hotel, hospice, and hospitality. And Christians essentially invented hospitals. They invented orphanages. They, they invented poverty relief. They were always looking outward for the needs and, and moving toward those needs and meeting those needs no matter who it was or what it was or, or where it was. And just as Julian and, and Julian's people took notice of the remarkable compassion these, 
these early Christians showed. These first Christians in Acts chapter 2, they were, they were being noticed too. Because we're told in verse 47 that because of all these things they were doing, they were enjoying the favor of, of the people around them in their community. They were enjoying favor. Which leads us to our fifth and final mark of a vital church, and that is deliberate evangelism. <clears throat> One thing that seems clear because of the ways these people were giving themselves away for the sake of others, people outside the church, they were attracted to them. They were attracted to the church, and we're told in the final words of this passage, they were, they were attracted to, to Jesus. It says people were being saved left and right every, every day, it says. And so this first church was a, a growing church. It's a historical fact that for the first three centuries after this very first church, Christianity exploded in a way that no human movement ever has. It grew to the point where it actually displaced the older Greco-Roman Empire and much of the culture itself. And so this first church was, or this early church was being the church and and it was getting noticed. People noticed. People were taking notice. Notice. People were showing the compassion of Jesus through their lives. And they were sharing the good news about Jesus with, with their mouths. And God was building and growing his church through his people. That's been the pattern from the very beginning. Now for me... And perhaps for some of you, this is perhaps the most challenging of the five marks we are considering this morning. Because here we are in Seattle, Washington in the year 2023, 2,000 years removed from this passage in this church. And, and most of the time, it doesn't seem like anybody around us really wants to hear about Jesus. And there don't really seem to be very many churches around us where the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. Friends, we do have something here at our church that is very special. I think you all agree with that. And I'm grateful to God for, for what we have. But we have, we have struggled to grow as a church here in Edmonds uh, beyond 75 people or so all in on a, on a good day. And I've wrestled with the Lord a lot about this over the last five years. At times it's been a source of discouragement and frustration. Not only for me, but I know for some of you too. And so, so what do we do with that? Are we doing something wrong? Am I doing something wrong? Does it mean we are failing as a church if we are not growing as a church? Are we somehow letting God down? Friends, I don't, I don't think we are. I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses because I, I certainly could be doing more and I should be doing more. And if we're going to be honest, you, you could too. That will always be true. But I do want to look again very carefully at exactly what verse 47 says. It says, every day... The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Who, who added to their number? It says, it says the Lord did. 
Jesus doesn't say, you will build my church. He doesn't say, you will add to your number. He says, I will do it. I, w- I will. But he also says, I want you to join me. And he sa- also says, I, I want you to trust me. Whatever that may turn out to, to look like. <clears throat> Jesus is sovereign over the future of this church. I, I do believe that. He He will add to our number if and when and how he chooses or not. That's that's up to him. Are you going to be okay with that? Am I going to be okay with that? It's up to him. But again, you and I, we're not to sit back either, are we? In fact, as we enter this new season, we're going to be doing some intentional things through our MCs and other, other channels to kind of recast our our vision as a church and to reset our our mission here in Edmonds. And so I'd like to challenge you to consider new ways we might engage our neighbors and our neighborhoods. I'd like to challenge you. I'd like us to challenge one another to be watchful for, for the needs around us in our lives that are right in front of us so that we can begin to move toward those needs and meet those needs together as a church. I'd like to challenge us And challenge one another to be willing to show Jesus with the ways that we live and with the ways that we love. And to to share Jesus with our mouths. Jesus will build his church, but we have work to do too. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. But for for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. God's co-workers. I like that. Let's be that. Let's, Let's join him together in that and as we do let's let's be deliberate about preparing the soil let's be planting and uh, weeding and watering and waiting understanding that it's only God who gives the growth but in the meantime let us continue devoting ourselves to the word of God asking that he might fill us with the spirit of God as we center our lives on the Son of God together as a church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways that you have been loving and leading us as your people. Thank you for what we have here. Thank you for what you've created. We are grateful. We are hopeful. We are expectant as we take this step of faith. Would you make us, God, a church like this very first church where the Spirit is moving, where the teaching is faithful, where the fellowship is authentic, where the worship is vibrant, where our outreach is impactful, and where our evangelism is intentional. Thank you, God, that we can join you as your humble and hopeful co-workers. In Jesus' name, amen.
Over these next few moments, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper at your own pace as we do each week, remembering the realities, uh, the gospel realities that Christ came to give his body and to shed his blood. Remember as we do this, the compassion and the generosity that Jesus extended to us when, when we were in need. And, and I think re- remembering those things is what can change our hearts and make us a generous people when we understand God's genera- generosity extended toward us in Jesus. So over these next few minutes as we sing a couple of songs, please partake in the Lord's Supper at your own pace. <laughs>